This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, guys, we have Trey Stevens with us today, a partner at the legendary Founders Fund, chairman of Andrel Industries, and we're going to talk about exercising moral leadership. So let me set the stage. The last couple of weeks, we've been exploring the book of Exodus, and this week we're moving on to the book of Leviticus, so fun times ahead. The book of Leviticus starts with the question, how do we make things right after we've sinned? And the Bible's answer is, it depends. There are different rules for ordinary individuals, the high priest, the high court, the leader of the people. And depending on which of those categories you fall into, you bring a different type of sacrifice in the temple. But there's actually a funny thing that happens in the text, especially if you're reading it in the original Hebrew. When it describes sins by all of these different groups, the Bible uses the word im, which means if. If the high priest sins, you do X, Y, and Z. If an ordinary individual sins, you do A, B, and C. If the high court sins, you do X, Y, and Z. But there's one exception, and that's for a leader. Because when it comes to someone exercising leadership in society, the Bible actually uses the word asher, which means when. So apparently for the Bible, it's not a question of if a leader will sin. It's a question of when a leader will sin. And why is that? And I think the answer lies in understanding that society is complex. Anytime free beings come together to accomplish things none of us could do alone, we have the capacity both to achieve good and wonderful things and to do terrible things. And much of what we do will be a mixture of both. If you're going to step up and be a leader in society, that means inevitably that you're going to deal with weighty questions that will try your soul. You're going to have to confront questions about war and peace, scarcity and abundance, loyalty to family versus charity to outsiders. And questions that don't have clear-cut answers. And guess what? That means you're going to mess up. The solutions you come up with are going to be imperfect. So does that mean that in an ideal world, we should keep ourselves free from any possible sin and just abstain from these issues? And the answer we find in Leviticus is absolutely not. Refusing to engage the toughest questions in society isn't a virtue. It's a failure of leadership. And what we really need is not a failure of leadership, but a leadership of failure. We need leaders who know that they will fail. It's a question of when, not if, but do their best to lead anyway in the hope that society will be better for it. And in fact, that's why one of my favorite ancient Jewish traditions about our verse here in Leviticus is when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who lived 2,000 years ago in the first century, came up with the following play on words. He read the word in our verse, asher, when, as if it were the Hebrew word ashrei, which means happy. And he taught, Happy is the generation whose leader is ready to bring a sin offering for his mistakes. And we need leaders who are willing to bring moral leadership and apply eternal values to guiding our society forward in all its complexity, even or especially in highly fraught areas of human affairs. So to talk about how important this is, I brought on someone who has thought about this and done it at the highest possible level. He's a partner at the legendary venture capital firm, The Founders Fund. He's the chairman of Andrel Industries, a major player in the defense industry, and a wonderfully brilliant thinker. He is the remarkable Mr. Trey Stevens. Trey, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Ari. I really appreciate it. 
So I think the conventional wisdom kind of sees the worlds of technological innovation and traditional religion as more or less like mortal enemies, like sort of Luke versus Vader, with Vader being different side depending on your perspective, or at least see them as being just like total opposites, right? So like Kirk and Spock, right? I guess to round out my references to star-based franchises. Um, now, listeners of Good Faith Effort will remember that I'm actually deeply convinced that tech and traditional religion are natural allies, each of which should, you know, benefit from and, and build off of the other's unique strengths. And I want to talk more about that in a bit. But I will say that one way in which tech and traditional religion are like already quite similar is that I think there's at least a popular perception that both have these like pretty strict tendencies towards purity. Right. So there's at least a type of religious person who look at the world, say, of politics and say this whole thing is dirty and truly religious people shouldn't get involved because it will contaminate us. And sort of a heavily oversimplified version of like render unto Caesar. And there's at least a type of person in tech who will treat related areas of human affairs in a similar way, right? So you have this famous letter from the Google employees saying they don't want to be in the business of war. And it's the same like ascetic tendency of abstaining from parts of the world that would normally contaminate us. So then there's someone like you who straddles both worlds and you're focused on building in the defense industry and the tech side. And you also take traditional faith quite seriously. So First of all, can you tell us a bit about your background and then get into how you think about bringing your values into these fraught areas of human affairs? There's so many different directions we could take that. I actually think your uh, Star Wars Luke and Vader analogy maybe is unintentionally very apt because... That's what I go for, unintentional aptness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should remember that Vader ended up turning back towards Luke at the end of Return of the Jedi. And the framing of that was that Luke said to Anakin and I'm using the word Anakin here intentionally, he said, I still see the good in you. And despite converting to the dark side and carrying out all these horrific acts, Luke could still see that Vader was tormented by his struggles with morality, by his struggles with power, by his struggles with his mortality and the mortality of Padme, which is the original reason why he turned to the dark side to in begin with, place. was to save her life. So there was like this torment that existed. And then going in the other direction, you had Vader, Vader, I'm using the word Vader intentionally right. this time, communicating to Luke basically like, you're naive. Like you don't see the weakness of the Jedi Order. You don't see the lack of power that you're basically giving up by agreeing to submit yourself to these credos, to this dogma that's been passed down in this effectively a cult for centuries. So I think that this is actually not that dissimilar from the struggle that happens inside the tech community as it pertains not only to communities of faith, but also to some of these really highly fraught, as you say, uh, areas of human affairs where we're called into like stepping through, pushing through simplicity into these areas of deep complexity. And of all the places where I've spent time in my career, the tech industry is actually remarkably curious about some of these complexities in ways that Anakin came around to at the very end and saying like, you know, it's not as simple as a power struggle. It's not as simple as a technology struggle or a, the battle between the empire and the rebellion. There's something deeper inside that is unresolved in my soul. And I think people see that and they strive towards understanding it. And maybe they don't end up in the same place that I have, but it's still kind of part of that story. I know that they didn't answer your original question, which is what my background is, but I am a hopeless Star Wars nerd. <laughs> and I'm actually doing this interview right now from the Founders Fund office in the Presidio in San Francisco. And we are headquartered in Lucasfilm's headquarters. So Amazing. there's <laughs> there's this part of me that, you know, with lightsabers behind me and, you know, uh, Dingerin, uh, 
with Jordans in the background that is living out my childhood dream of, you know, if I can't work for George Lucas, at least I can work in the same building. You can work George near Lucas. him, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I actually like this. I mean, I guess I suppose to just extend the conversation that we both just want to have anyway. Um, like if you were an alien from outer space and you just heard about what Silicon Valley is or just like the world of tech in general, right? Especially as it becomes more geographically diffuse. I feel like you'd be pretty shocked to learn that Silicon Valley is, or at least has this reputation as being kind of like indifferent or hostile towards religion. Because if I think about two central challenges that that Silicon Valley is here or sees itself as here to confront, they would be the misconception that there's no such thing as a free lunch and humans are doomed to live within the limits of a world of scarcity. And so while most of society just kind of like complacently accepts these ideas, tech is this, frankly, super exciting bastion of thinkers and doers who say, no, we do not accept these principles as like immutable limitations and we're going to find a way out of them, right? But until tech came along, the greatest and maybe only source for this kind of hopeful vision is like the book of Genesis, right? So just to take these two ideas, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Like really? Well, along comes the book of Genesis and says, bam, God created the world out of love for you. And creation is the ultimate free lunch that we now have the responsibility as God's partners, right, to continue. And humans are doomed to suffer scarcity. Well, again, along comes the book of Genesis and says, guess what? Every single person ever created will have the divine image. It's the ultimate non-rivalrous good that ensures human flourishing is possible. And like both when these ideas were introduced and even today, they're considered these like wild, fanciful, crazy ideas but the believers who pushed them forward were like, so what? Of course, we're wild and crazy dreamers. That's the only way we're going to transform the world. And I feel like that almost fantastical, almost delusional attitude pretty much exactly sums up, in the best way delusional, sums up like the mission statement of Silicon Valley, right? So with that as a prelude, why on earth isn't Silicon Valley more interested in biblical religion? And whatever the answer, how can we build that alliance moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you just summed up like the most ideological version of a viewpoint of Silicon Valley that you, <laughs> that you possibly could have. I think at its best, it is like kind of this eschatological push towards creating abundance and delivering better outcomes for people. I, I think oftentimes it doesn't end up being that in practice. Mm. It's much more imitative and competitive. A lot of times, you know, in the venture capital context, we'll have founders that come in and you know, you ask them why they think their business will work and they'll say like, well, the existence of competitors in the market validates the existence of a market. It's like, so what you're telling me is that you are competing for scarce resources and you just think that you're going to be able to outcompete everyone else that shares effectively the exact same vision for the future as you do. And we're down the Girard rabbit hole all of a sudden, right? I mean, wow. If, if you want to spend the next hour talking about Rene Girard, we can do that. But uh, Oh my God, I totally do. I'm just going to mark that down. We'll get back to that. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I mean, it will not come as a surprise to you that here at Founders Fund, Girard is not an irregular topic of conversation. <laughs> but I think that is like kind of the raw depravity of Silicon Valley is that it's a lie that people are investing their time and resources in creating abundance. And actually, most of the time, it's just competing over scarce resources and being highly, highly imitative. And going back to this point of like, we're supposed to be pushing through simplicity into complexity, oftentimes like these really high pitch moral ramblings that come out of Silicon Valley are deeply imitative. Like they don't actually have any of the complexity that would be required to have a credible conversation. It's just a homogenous thought community. And if you break, you know, the line with culture on any of these admittedly highly complex issues, 
it becomes difficult to operate your job, like execute your job or fit into the community or whatever. And so a lot of the complexity just gets washed away in this imitative behavior. You see kind of pouring out in the types of companies that get started as well. It's like, how many food delivery companies can we have? Really? Like, how many? Part of me feels like maybe one of the problems that you're outlining is like, I'm always really suspicious of people who don't have teachers. And I mean teachers in the like traditional sense of someone that you revere, right? Not someone you admire, someone you revere. And I'm always suspicious of people who don't have that. And I feel like in Silicon Valley, there's this or kind of, again, I'm dealing sort of in the popular perception of tech. I mean, I suppose, you know, even the the fund that you work for, right? everyone wants to be a founder, right? So everybody wants to be a Moses, but nobody wants to be a Joshua. And yet there's something to being a Joshua, right? To continuing in a tradition. When I think of your work and your contribution, so you have this fantastic article that, by the way, everybody should read about applying just war theory to how you think about investing in defense and whether you should invest in defense. And part of why I think that's really powerful is because you come at your groundbreaking work in the tech sector from the perspective of, I have something to learn from tradition here, right? So do you think about that consciously, like kind of bringing, you know, the sources of tradition into your very new and pathbreaking work? For sure. Yes. <laughs> I think you would not have to read very much of the article that I posted on defense ethics to like have some idea for how much time I spend kind of wringing my hands on these things, trying to like really grit into the complexity of the topics that are at least core to my job and career, whether that's as a venture capitalist or as the co-founder of a defense company. But, you know, tying this back to the original discussion of Leviticus, which I think is, is a powerful kind of metaphor in some ways for the conversations that we're digging into today. For most of my life, I think I would have read the book of Leviticus and conceptualized this as God's law. And it's like, well, what is, what is God's law? It's like God telling us all the things that we're not supposed to do and the things that we are supposed to do and like how we're punished and how our sin is absolved and things like that, all, all in that context. But now that I'm like further along in life and I've had more time to think about this, like I, I think I've begun to realize that God's law in most cases is just wisdom about how to not screw up your life and society. And so it's like, you know, you might want to do this thing. I've told you not to do it. You might be resentful that I've told you not to do this thing that you want to do. But the only reason I'm telling you that is because I, I know how the, how the story ends. And this is not going to actually bring you joy or lead to abundance very short way of saying this is like the reason God requires is because it's what he desires. And I think that's like a tension that most people don't understand about what they view as being like just highly dogmatic legal structures. And that's something that I have leaned into really hard, not only here at Founderswim, but also with Anderil, is just this idea that like, there are all sorts of things that like are conceptually like easy. Like you could say like, my desire is an indication in some way that this is the thing that I should be doing or the thing that's moral. It's like the, the tie between like my own uh, humanity and the goodness of that humanity. Um, but I, I think that there's all, there's this big category of things that are like really hard and really tough to struggle through and they don't feel good, but they are good. And getting to the place where we're able to have that dialogue and reach a conclusion that says, this doesn't make me feel good, but it is the moral decision kind of lost that as a society in some ways by condensing our intellectual discourse to 140 characters. It doesn't work like it should. Is that part of the issue? We just like don't have patience to grapple with really weighty texts, right? We had Tommy Carlson on the podcast a couple of episodes ago 
And I remember speaking to Tommy about his great books project. And one of the things that we talked about was how, you know, what's stopping people from just really pouring into these books, even if they don't feel bound by them in any way at all, what's stopping people in the biggest barriers, just like they're a slog, man. You actually have to put in some effort. It's going to be more than 140 characters. But you would assume that in Silicon Valley, where people are used to like solving hard problems and putting in the time to come up with good solutions to naughty issues, that people would have patience to read a little bit. Am I sort of misreading the landscape there? I mean, there are, of course, exceptions. Yeah, like people right. that, that I don't are like really, right. yeah, there are, of course, people that are very sophisticated and disciplined and whatever. I also think there are a lot of people that are like, it costs me nothing to like tell the world what I think on Twitter right. about this thing that I have no reason to comment on. And that's something that like, you know, I've certainly tried to be disciplined about. It's like, you know, before I click send, it's like, is this going to be positive for the world? Is it going to add something novel to the discussion? Um, am I doing this because I am trying to signal something performative uh, to a community of people? If so, like, is that the right thing to do? Um, and I think that oftentimes people are just like very, they move very fast in these things. And they're just like, you know, this is the way I feel. Therefore, it's worth saying. It's like, actually, there's like, there's a lot of things that you might feel that might not be worth saying. <laughs> and it goes the same for like venture investing. Like there are a lot of things that I could invest in that might not be worth investing in, um, even if I think it's like a really interesting cut on some consumer product or something like that. So I think one of also the quite remarkable and frightening things about social media is that it kind of removes the traditional context in which people discuss, which is typically when you're, if you're just like musing about important or even not, or even sort of frivolous things in your life. So for thousands, if not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, you know, people have had conversations like this around the campfire. There's been sort of a communal context for it. So if I think about, you know, my own journey, let's say with, with studying the Bible or studying ancient Jewish texts, I'm never doing them by myself. You do them with other people. And that's quite important, actually. You know, it's not performative that, that you actually will get something different out of it when you learn it in a group. I don't know if that's something that you've experienced with your own background in, in studying the Bible, but does, is that something that resonates? Totally. I mean, there are biological triggers in this as well. Like, how many times have we been in environments where you say something and somebody tells you that they were hurt or offended or whatever by the thing you said that not just like lodges in your throat and you're like, oh, man this sucks. Like I, I didn't mean to do that. Or maybe I did mean to do that, but it didn't occur to me how this was going to affect other people. You do that same thing on Twitter and someone's like, you're mean. I don't like you. You're like, okay, <laughs> well, whatever, man. It's just like a very different thing. You know, part of that like discourse thing is that the ideas should go in both directions. And so much of social media is this one directional kind of like, I'm throwing this out into the void or, or whatever whatever you think about that. Void is maybe a more negative characteristic than some people would say. But I think engaging in discourse and like being open to disagreement and hearing the way that people are responding to the ideas that are being presented, it adds so much more complexity that I think gets us closer to truth, whatever that truth might be. How did you get to reading the Bible? What's, what's, if you don't mind my asking, what's your background? Like, How do you come to this? 
So not terribly dissimilar from you, Ari. My family was in the ministry. So my hey, grandfather, <laughs> yeah, there you go. My grandfather was the pastor of my church growing up. Oh, So I had a very religious upbringing, kind of in the evangelical Protestant tradition. There's so many like beautiful, wonderful things that that came out of that tradition for me. You know, it's especially popular in Silicon Valley to be negative about evangelical Protestantism. And I will say, I don't necessarily agree with everything that is generally represented by that group, whether it's, you know, the Franklin Grahams or the Liberty Universities of the world. But I do feel like there's a lot of beauty in that tradition. And kind of over the course of going from that background through high school and then going to a Jesuit Catholic school for, uh, for university to like going into government service and national security and then now into Silicon Valley stuff, there's all this like complexity that gets teased out of that and obviously like a formation of my own beliefs and values that comes out of it. But um, the rootedness in scripture, I think, is core to all of this. I'm sure this won't be alien to you, but you know, one of the things that I'm continually surprised by is just having the discipline of opening the Bible or opening the YouVersion app or whatever on your phone and reading it on a daily basis as, as a habit that you're forming, a spiritual discipline that you're forming. It's amazing how like even the most seemingly irrelevant chapters of the Bible, and I will say like Leviticus 4 kind of feels like that when you first read it. It's like, oh man, this is like, how do you cut up the sacrifice? Where do you offer it? There's so much wisdom that can be drawn out of this. And it starts to feel like every day you're applying scripture to your life that you wouldn't have even realized was able to be applied to life. And that only comes out of the discipline of staying hooked in, which is a super important part of my spiritual work for sure. Wow. Okay. So now I'm, now I'm super excited. Okay. So I have kind of a two-parter for you. So I'm super convinced that the future of society is really only going to be delivered and built in the best way by a natural alliance between traditional religion and the aspirational world of tech. I really think they're natural allies. And I kind of see the division of labor as follows. I think that the world of tech is great at building the software for this alliance. And I think traditional religious people are great at building the hardware. And what I mean by that is as follows. So I'll start with the software. You just mentioned like version. I can think of a bunch of other things. And also a friend of the pod, Catherine Boyle, wrote an amazing article in the Washington Post about how, you know, Silicon Valley has is, is actually been getting much, much better about powering very cool faith ideas to get out there in the world. I remember there was like a gathering. This is like a couple of years ago now. It's quite famous in like Orthodox Jewish circles where I come from. I'm, I'm a very proud religious fanatic. But there was like a gathering at MetLife Stadium and it was called like the Internet Asifa and Asifa means like a gathering. And it was like this protest against like the existence of the Internet. This is like four years ago. It wasn't that long ago. And I remember on the contrary, seeing other groups of like deeply committed and passionate like Orthodox Jewish thinkers looking at the Internet and being like, holy cow, this is the chance we've been waiting for. Like all of a sudden you can get your ideas and your content out to so many more people. And if you think about kind of visions of the future that you'll encounter in, you know, some of the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible that read, I'm sure at the time, like magical thinking, like gathering people from all four corners of the earth, you know, blowing a trumpet and everybody can hear it across the entire earth. Those things are literally possible now. And so you can kind of see tech as making possible things that great religious thinkers have only dreamed of for centuries. So if I'm going to a, and then I'll flip the question around the other way, but if I'm going to like a traditional religious community, whether it's an evangelical community, whether it's an Anglican community, whether it's an Orthodox Jewish community or a Muslim community, 
how do I make the case that you guys should actually see tech as like your best friends? What's the case for that? Oh man, it is a hard question because I think there's like part of me that kind of exists on both sides of this spectrum. Likewise. <laughs> yeah, the, the part of me on the eschatological tech utopianism, I guess, that however you want to frame that, is that I believe that our work matters. Like our vocation matters. The contributions that we're making on a day-to-day basis matter. They matter to God. I think that's very clear in scripture that we're called into like, do whatever it is that we do to the best of our ability towards honoring God and our communities and things like that. I believe deeply in that. Uh, And I believe that our work, the things that we make are ladders to the new Jerusalem or however you want to frame it. And so, you know, the things that we're investing our time and our hands into making here on earth very likely will matter in the hereafter. But I also think that there's tremendous risk that's involved in this and that while humans are inherently created perfectly by the creator, we are also depraved in many ways. And um, we have a tendency to pervert the perfection of creation in all of these ways that uh, result in suffering and destruction. And I think those things are simultaneously true, unfortunately. So it's like really hard to like unpack in any specific direction. So like, you know, to take your example, like while I think the internet can be an, an instrument for tremendous good, I also think it's an instrument for tremendous evil. Right. And we have to like really get comfortable with the idea that we have to check ourselves going back to your point about leaders, like when leaders, not if leaders um, have moral failings, do we have a willingness to hold ourselves accountable for them? And do we realize that making a decision is a moral decision, not making a decision is a moral decision. I think this is like one of the things that I'm most shocked by in Silicon Valley is people feel for whatever crazy reason that abstaining from making an ethical statement is not making an ethical statement. Right. We're not going to invest in the business of war. That's taking a position. That is taking a position. Yes. You're basically saying like, I am okay with another nation state adversary, even a non-state actor, like a terrorist organization. I am okay with ceding ground to that operating system for humanity, taking precedence over the operating system that, that we've chosen to stand for in our, in our current state. And that is an ethical decision. Like you can, you can, you know, brush it off your shoulders and say like, you know, my hands are clean kind of, you know, in the Christian version of Pilate washing his hands of the crucifixion, but that is a moral decision. And, you know, as we see communities like the, the Uyghur Muslims in Western China be massacred by the Chinese Communist Party, are we comfortable saying that vision for the world is okay? that I'm okay with accepting not only for me and my family and my friends and my loved ones here in the United States, but am I okay accepting that vision of reality for the Chinese people who are not culpable in this? The Chinese people are not guilty of the crimes of their government, uh, especially in an authoritarian system, even more so than it would be in a democratic system. And so I think this is like an important kind of discussion point for all of these conversations, even as they pertain to things like the internet, which is like, you don't have a free pass to just sit back and say like, the internet is fully decentralized and like anyone, it's fair game for, you know, do whatever you want. Um, Because I think there are implications that come out of that, that create massive moral fallout in ways that maybe we shouldn't be okay with. I'm not saying that we should make it illegal necessarily, but like we need to be aware of the moral implications of the things that we're building in the tech community. 
I mean, I suppose if anything, that places like even more of a, of an obligation upon us to see the potential of what we can build and use it for good. Well, I guess the flip side of that question is, you know, as I said earlier, I think religious communities are really good at building hardware. And what I mean by that is like if we're thinking just in a raw sense about what does it mean to invest in the future, investing in the future means more people in the future. And the best communities at producing people are religious communities. Like, I'm just thinking about, like, my own community's birth rates are extremely high. Like, please, God, we're, we're very, very blessed. We have four kids. We just had a, a new baby about a month and a half ago. We're very blessed. And we have, like, fewer kids than the average. Um, you know, please, God, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But religion's great at that. The Silicon Valley is not, right? So the birth rate in, in Silicon Valley itself is lower than the national or even, like, the California average. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But I wonder, in, like, your average, like, very, very techie place... I would imagine, or at least this would be the popular perception, that these aren't like super fecund communities with like seven or eight kids. A, why are communities that are so gung-ho about the future, at least in word, if not in deed, but sometimes in deed as well, why aren't they making more hardware for the future? And how would you make people better at that? This feels like a bit of a loaded question. There's so many directions we could take it. Um, so, so basically, like I feel okay. My wife and I are at replacement rate right now. So we have two kids. Uh, so, oh, I didn't mean it at, that way. <laughs> we're at least we're at least not contributing in the wrong direction. Right. Um, yeah. No. I, I think there's like the idiocracy version of this. I don't know if you've seen this movie, sure. but it's this idea that like there are communities of people that create children at a much higher rate than others. It turns out that the ones that are creating at the lowest rate are kind of the intellectual elites in a society and over time that leads to like a dumbing down right over hundreds of years or whatever and you know they elect a professional wrestler to be president right. and he's like shooting guns in the capitol building which i'm saying that now intentionally to evoke <laughs> the idea that like maybe we're already there maybe idiocracy has already happened but i think that part of this is like something that i struggle with a lot here struggle in a positive way not a negative way um here in silicon valley with which is the idea that like being religious does not mean you're dumb. And that is a very common perception. I, I'm part of this um, mm. kind of like Council on Foreign Relations type of organization called the Council on Science and Technology here in, in San Francisco. And you know there was a question in a recent seminar where someone says, why do right-wing religious Christians not believe in science? That was literally the question. And I was like, wow, the, <laughs> the lack of complexity in the framing of that question it yeah. just like <laughs> it tells you so much about the way that this community thinks about religious groups and like i'm not denying that there's like a great deal of people in religious communities that probably aren't thinking about theology in a deep way just like there isn't any community of people right. but i also think that like these traditional faiths particularly the abrahamic faiths have a deep deep religious philosophy uh, which you know theology would be the church word for that but like deep religious philosophy about literally everything like the origin of life the meaning of life the purpose of co-creation the meaning of our vocations i mean it's deep thought and there's reasons that these religions have existed for thousands of years right who, who am i why am i here and how therefore should i live yeah those are the three they haven't existed for this long because they're like really simple to understand and really dumb and like it's like the opiate for the masses or whatever they've existed for that long because they're addressing some of the hardest questions in the most sophisticated philosophical way you could possibly imagine and so I take it as a challenge for myself. Like, I'm not okay with being told as a Protestant Christian, this is what you should believe. Um, I want to know why. 
Like, why do I believe that? Why am I supposed to believe that? What are the implications of me believing that? How do I explain to others how I believe that? Kind of like this idea behind apologetics. Um, you know, why do humans suffer? Do I have a good answer to that? Can I articulate to people why I think that's part of God's plan for, for mankind? And, and I think that, like, you know, my hope would be that as the replacement rate uh, for procreation with religious communities uh, continues to exceed the procreation rate of non-religious communities, I hope that we would take that along with us. And so it would be not a like overly simplistic fundamentalist view of the world that leads to greater conflict, but a truly sophisticated, complex view of the world that has nuance uh, where we can love and embrace people of all different types, but we can also battle in discourse with each other about some of these things that are genuinely very, very difficult to understand and likely we will never understand until the end. Wow. So I have one last question for you, but my teacher and mentor, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory, he passed away during COVID. We talked about him on a previous episode with John Silver. He has this wonderful turn of phrase when it comes to the question that you just talked about, which I believe is something like science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts them back together to see what they mean. And I think that's a really good way of kind of phrasing the fact that it's not a dichotomy. It's sort of a complementary operation. Speaking of that, I've heard it might have been a podcast or might have been something that you've written. I've heard you use a phrase that I just found very inspiring and it resonated with me because it's actually quite an important theme in ancient rabbinic literature, which is partnering with God in the act of creation uh, or in kind of perfecting the act of creation. So can you say a little bit about what that means to you in your work and how that kind of motivates you? Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, God didn't say like, and here are skyscrapers and here are high-speed trains. No, he, he said, I'm putting you here to work. Work the ground, grow your food, you know, basically like build tools, name your tools, learn to perfect your tools. And part of the story is that God didn't say, I'm going to drop you here. And then like at the end, like whatever religious persuasion version of the end times is. And like, when I come back, it's going to be basically the same thing, just like with experience of pain and suffering and sin and redemption and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, the world is going to look vastly different from decade to decade, from century to century, from millennia to millennia. And God isn't going to build the printing press for us. God isn't going to create semiconductors for us. God isn't going to like govern the way that we interact with one another online. He says, like, I am putting the governorship of the world in the hands of humanity, for better or for worse, in moments of great triumph, in moments of great sin. And I am going to lean into accepting that humanity is going to make all sorts of decisions to co-create with the raw materials that I've given them. And I think there's something really beautiful about that because it means that kind of this ladder idea that I was talking about is that like he's using the work that we've made as a ladder to whatever is next. And I believe that we take that with us. Like we take our experiences with us of how we use those tools. We take our experience with us of the positive application of those tools. And we also take with us the accountability for where those tools were misused in ways that didn't lead to abundance and redemption for humanity. And so I think it's, it's a lot of just being mindful of how we're partnering with God in that mission. Amen. Guys, this has been Trey Stevens, a Founders Fund of Anduril Industries. Trey, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you having me and God bless. 
we're living at a moment of great opportunity for humanity. Certainly danger as well, but I think great opportunity. And if we wish to seize it, if we really want to transform our world for the better, we need to do it by embracing the wisdom of the past and being willing and ready to bring that wisdom into the sometimes messy, always challenging work of the future. And if we can do that, then as Trey said, we'll truly be the best possible partners for God in continuing the work of creation. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this, if you like this, then do us a great favor and give us a rating on iTunes. Give us a rating, give us a review, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, by the way, hit me up on Twitter and let me know that you rated us so that I can tell the entire world how unbelievably awesome you are. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.